As the kids filter through, go ahead, uh, grab your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. Um, as we work our way through this glorious book, verse at a time, um, this is where we find ourselves this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible on you, um, maybe you don't own a Bible, we want you to have God's Word open in your lap uh, in front of you. And uh, we don't have any ushers at the back, they're all busy, so we'll hit that again in a minute. Um, have you, ever, have you ever watched one of those movies where things are mostly making sense as you go along, um, but there's just a couple of things, there's just a few little tidbits that don't quite add up. There's some oddities, and, and, and so you're watching this movie, and there's some pieces that don't fit until you come to that cataclysmic moment at the end. There's some great revelation, some piece of information that's been hidden until now is made clear. And all of a sudden, you see the whole movie in a new light. The whole thing changes, and you're, you're kind of going back in your mind and, and rerunning it, and, and all of a sudden those little oddities that didn't make sense become these like obvious markers of what you feel like you should have known all along. And, 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 and you feel like you need to watch the whole movie over again. And you remember little details that you dismissed in the moment that now are just kind of overflowing with meaning. Of course, of course that's what it was. In some ways, the Bible's like that. It's not identical because the, the movie is actively hiding things from you. The Bible's spelling it out clearly. Um, the problem's not in what the Bible reveals. It's that we're a little slow sometimes. Um, and yet, the reality is it's so easy for us to read through the Old Testament to feel like, I mostly get it. I kind of see what's happening. I understand generally. I'm tracking. But, but you come to understand that from start to finish, it was all about Jesus. From the very beginning, every page was gospel truth pointing to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, it just... It blows wide open. And, and the things that, that once seemed a little strange and confusing, and why is that there? That doesn't really seem to, to fit. All of a sudden, it falls into place. And you really do need to go back and, and read the whole thing again. In fact, you need to do it again and again and again. And, and that's kind of what we're doing this morning. We looked at this same passage three weeks ago. Um, and it's not that we ignored the reality of Christ and the, and the gospel in the text. We just we didn't run all the way down that track. There, there just was too much to do all at once. And so this week is part two of Genesis 22. And we're going to look at verses 1 to 19 over again. Um, part one, we saw the faith of Abraham. And we saw how Abraham's faith was working out in obedience. Part two we're going to see the faithfulness of the Lord and take a closer look at that. So um, follow along with me as I read Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, his son Isaac, 
And he cut wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on his son Isaac, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And so Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived in Beersheba. Do you pray with me? Father, as we come before your word this morning, before this particular text that has meant so much to your people for so many years. God, we are humbled. Lord, I am humbled in my weakness. Would you open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word? How would you soften our hard hearts? Lord, I pray that Whatever I have prepared to say, the words of my mouth will be true to your word. God, if there's anything that I have to say that is not true to what you have spoken, that those words would fall to the ground and be forgotten. God, we want your word to go forward. And God, that it would, as you promise, not return void, but accomplish all that you set for it to do. God, would you be at work in us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Part one, three weeks ago, as I said, we looked at the faith of Abraham. God tested Abraham, asking him to do 
an incredibly difficult thing to sacrifice his only son on the altar. Abraham trusted God. He, he knew God had promised to bless him through Isaac. And so he trusted God's promise so much, we're told in the book of Hebrews, that he reasoned to himself that, that God could even raise the dead. And so he moved forward in obedience through this impossible situation, sacrificing that which he loved the most to the Lord. That act of obedience was, was proof of his faith. As the saying goes, talk is cheap. It's one thing to say, I trust God. It's another thing to actually obey him. Abraham's statement of faith is tested and it's shown to be genuine as he walks in actual obedience. And the Lord honors that faith. Not only did he spare Isaac, but he reaffirms to Abraham the, the promises, the covenant, the commitment that he had made with him. That the Lord would bless him, that it would make him into a great nation and that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And in that, Abraham becomes this, this fantastic example of faith. And we should learn from Abraham. That's a, that's a good and right application of this text. We should look at Abraham and we should expect and, and know the Lord tests his saints. We should trust him when our faith is tested, when we meet these impossible situations. We should be prepared to sacrifice the thing that we love most, just as Jesus did with the rich young ruler. Go sell all that you have and follow me. He was testing his heart, and the rich young ruler sadly failed that test. He was not willing to give up those things of the world to follow Christ. We should be prepared for that. And then to see the confident assurance uh, Abraham walks forward with this new confidence in the promises of God. As he's walking in obedience, he's assured in God's faithfulness and God's promises. And so again, that's a, that's a good and right reading and application of the text. That's where James applies this text. That's where Hebrews applies this text. But it's not all that's there. And there's so much more just under the surface. And, and if you're paying attention, you know there, there has to be more to come. Because just like watching that movie um, without knowing the twist at the end, there's a couple things that just aren't adding up. There's some pieces here that need to fit into their place still. So before we jump into part two, um, I want to go back to the beginning and just give us this larger context so that we can kind of feel the rub of some of these questions that need to be answered. From the very beginning, God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Eden was this place of perfection. Right? It's where they had the peace of God. They had the provision of God, every good thing that they needed in abundance. And most importantly, they had the presence of God. He was there with them. God gave them one command. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He told them that the day that they eat of it, they will surely die was simple. He was their creator. They are the creation. They were to obey him. They were to honor him. And the consequence for disobedience was death. Adam and Eve, as we know, did not trust God. They did not submit to him and obey him. Instead, they listened to the serpent. They were deceived and enticed by Satan, and they went their own way. 
They ate the fruit. It wasn't just an eating of a fruit. It was a, it was a declaration of their independence from God. We'll make our decisions, thank you very much. We will be like our own gods. Because of their disobedience, they were expelled from the Garden of Eden. They're removed from the peace of God, and they're now introduced to a world of suffering and chaos and strife. They're removed from the provision of God. They're introduced to a new world of toil and struggle and lack and need. Worst of all, they're removed from the presence of God, introduced to a world that is separated from him. Those are catastrophic losses. And in some ways, that represents a kind of death. And there are realities that that we continue to live in in this day. As we look out in our world, um, we see the, the ripple effect of that decision destroying this world before our eyes. And yet, it is by the mercy of God the grace of God that, that humanity did continue to live. And we're still here. It doesn't add up. Adam and Eve were not immediately put to death. In fact, in the face of their sin, as God is rolling out the consequences, we call the curse of sin in Genesis 3, God actually drops a promise of life. Genesis 3.15, right in the middle of this, um, The Lord made this promise that there would be a a male offspring born of the woman. And though the serpent would bruise his heel, would hurt him in some way, he would crush the head of the serpent. He would be victorious. He would utterly defeat and destroy the serpent. And and the idea is there that, that he would undo what the serpent had done. The promise through the beginning is that God would one day restore humanity again to a Garden of Eden-like life and existence. But the question is, how? And God wasn't kidding when he said that the, the, the wages of sin is death. Rebellion against God is an assault against his glory. The Bible is impeccably clear as we continue through it. No sin will go unpunished. God does not and cannot simply overlook sin. He can't just kind of sweep it under the carpet, pretend it didn't happen. That's not, that's not justice. That's not righteousness. There's a price to be paid. He displayed that clearly as the world continued to grow and they were fruitful and, and multiplied. And they, they also multiplied in wickedness. And the earth became a dark, wicked, evil place. And so God sent the flood to kill every man, woman, and child. But again, he is mysteriously merciful. It says that he showed favor on Noah, God's grace to Noah, and he he rescues Noah and his family through the judgment. Why? How? Noah is not sinless. Continue reading the story of Noah. That becomes very clear. We are given a hint right after the flood Noah goes out and he builds an altar and he sacrifices a burnt offering on the altar. And Genesis 8, 21 has this odd statement. Listen to the incongruity of this. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man 
For the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Um, This is part of the, the covenant with Noah, the promise of the rainbow that God would never again flood the earth. But but did you notice? It says, because for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. It wasn't that humanity was better now. There's this reset, this wiping clean of the earth. It's this picture of a, of a new creation, the new earth emerging out of the water and the, and the animals come forth and they're told to be fruitful and multiply and yet wickedness still exists. Evil is still there. And yet as the Lord smells the pleasing aroma of the offering, he says, I will not do that again. I will not judge the earth this way again. It's a hint, but it's not everything. What is it about the sacrifice? How does this work? What does that mean? Moving forward from Noah, uh, the world quickly again descends into wickedness as we anticipate. Rebellion against God's command to, to multiply and fill the earth for His glory. Instead, they gather together in the town of Babel and they build a tower. And they build it saying, we must make a name for ourselves. Again, they're saying, God, that's great you want us to to see your fame and your glory, but, but this is about our glory. We're going to build a tower up to the heavens. We're going to make a name for ourselves. The Lord intervenes, confuses their language, scatters them across the earth as he had commanded them to do, but it only begs the question all the more, why has he allowed them to continue to exist? How will humanity be rescued? How will God save them from this wicked rebellion that lives in their hearts that is so pervasive? How will he rescue us from the death that we deserve? In direct response to the Tower of Babel in in Genesis 11 and them trying to make a name for themselves comes the call of Abraham in Genesis 12. And God says, I will make your name great, Abraham. And I will give you great offspring, and through you, all the families of the earth, all these nations that have just been scattered, they will all be blessed through you, Abraham. But the promise is narrowing down. God's getting more specific. It's not going to be just an offspring. Now it's going to be Abraham's offspring. It's building on that promise from Genesis 3.15, but it still lacks clarity. It still lacks detail. One of the key verses in the life of Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, says the Lord, that Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So that's huge. That's a massive piece of the, of the puzzle. This is one answer to how the Lord will rescue wicked humanity. Um, it wasn't that Abraham or Noah or Enoch or any of those others were perfect people. It's not that they lived such good lives that they earned God's favor and so he blessed them. Again, read the rest of each of those stories. That's not the case. It's that they believed God. They trusted him. They they trusted God's rescue was coming. They had faith in him. They trusted his promise and God counted that faith as righteousness. They weren't righteous, but God took faith and counted it in the place of righteousness. Again, that's a huge piece of the puzzle, but it leaves questions lingering. How? The question of God's judgment and justice is still left unanswered. 
As we come to Genesis 22, this is the biggest hint so far. This is the biggest piece. One of the clearest places in the Old Testament that God says, this is how it will work. This is how I'm going to do it. This is how I can forgive sinful humanity. This is what an offering, a burnt offering, is all about. This is how I can take the faith of a sinful person and count it as righteousness. This is how perfect justice and extravagant grace can exist at the same time. So Genesis 22 is not just an example of the faith of Abraham, but it is at the same time God using Abraham as this living metaphor, unveiling how it is that Abraham's faith can be credited as righteousness. So with all that kind of context and backstory, let's look again uh, at Genesis 22. First, um, looking at verses 1 to 10, I want to read it again. We'll just have this kind of fresh in front of us. After these things, God tested Abraham, said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And the Lord answers, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he rose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hands the fire and the knife, and so they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them together. When they came to the place which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. As we look at this passage and looking beneath the surface, what we see is God's sacrifice. God's sacrifice. The Lord doesn't just tell Abraham, take your son. Notice how excruciatingly specific he is. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. You just imagine Abraham's heart breaking again and again with every line. Your son, the promised son, your beloved son. The name Isaac in the Hebrew is actually at the end. I think that's on purpose. The name Isaac means laughter. This was his joy. Those of you who are parents, you know there's just nothing worse than seeing your kid in pain. We got on an airplane uh, last Tuesday. We got halfway up, and, and my son, my oldest son, um, had some kind of pocket of pressure in his face, and he spent an hour just writhing in pain, and there's nothing I can do. It's torture. For him, also for me. Abraham's told to take his son and kill him. 
And, and as we read it, we can't even believe our eyes. This is terrible. In fact, uh, more than a few people, many atheists and, and scoffers at the Bible would take this passage and say, look, this God is a monster. This is absurd. How could he ask for such a thing? What kind of God would do this? And even if it is just a test, as you Christians say, that doesn't help. It doesn't make it any better. God puts Abraham through this excruciating ordeal and then pretends to make it all okay by saying, just kidding at the end? That's not all right. What kind of God would do this? And the truth is we're right. We are right to be shocked here. We're right to be morally offended as we read this. This is a a brutal thing that God has asked Abraham to do. But what so many have missed is that God doesn't just say, okay, just kidding. The focus of this passage is not actually what God asked Abraham to do, but that in the middle of it, he's actually showing Abraham what he would do. He's actually saying, no, Abraham, actually you don't need to sacrifice your son because I'm going to sacrifice my son. Nancy Guthrie puts it this way. When we begin to see what God intends for us to see, our outrage gives way to adoration. Our consternation gives way to worship. Our horror melts into humility before a God who rather than asking the unthinkable of us has done the unimaginable for us. We're meant to feel that outrage and that horror and that offense of God asking Abraham to sacrifice his own son because only then can we appreciate what God would actually do. John 3.16, we quote it so much we forget what it means. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. God would spare Isaac, Abraham's son, but he would not spare his own son. Romans 8.32, probably the the direct reference to Genesis 22. Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? God did spare Abraham's son. He did not spare his own. There's a second objection that comes up here. What kind of God is this? who would get angry at a bunch of rebels and purport to solve the problem by killing his own son, innocent son, who'd done nothing wrong. I think it was Richard Dawkins uh, who who scoffed at this being like the, 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 the father that loses his temper at his kid and goes and kicks the dog instead. Is that the God that we serve? Is that what's going on here? A number of progressive so-called pastors, scholars have said this, this amounts to cosmic child abuse. But is that what we see in Scripture? Is that the picture that the Lord is painting for us, building the foundation for this in Genesis 22? Look at verse 6. The old man, Abraham, takes the wood, places it on Isaac, 
And Isaac carries the wood of his own sacrifice up the mountain. And then it says this line, and so they went, both of them together. Along the way, there's this intimate exchange. The the language here is so, so personal, so endearing. Isaac says, my father. Abraham responds, here I am, my son. I'm right here. Isaac asks, behold the fire, the wood, where's the lamb? I don't know how old Isaac is exactly. Um, It's the same word, the boy, that was used of Ishmael just chapters before when we know he was uh, between 13 and 16. Isaac's old enough to carry the wood up the mountain. I think he's old enough to figure it out. They live in a culture surrounded by child sacrifice. They've seen it. All the pieces are adding up here, Dad. What's going on? Abraham's response is actually grammatically ambiguous. It's unclear in the Hebrew. Um, We talked about this last time. Abraham could be saying, God will provide a lamb, my son. It could also be said, God will provide a lamb, my son. As in, my son, you are the lamb. Verse 8 finishes, so they went, both of them together. And then following, we see this old Man, north of a hundred, is able to catch and bind and lift and place his strapping young son on the altar. Isaac trusts his father. Now there's some level of speculation for sure about whether or not Isaac understood what was happening. There is no speculation when it comes to Christ. On at least five separate occasions, Jesus clearly foretells and points forward to his coming crucifixion. Mark 10, 45, he says, this has been my purpose. He says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is his plan. He says, this is my purpose. This is why I came. John 10, 18, he says, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down of my own accord. Just as Isaac carried the wood for his own sacrifice up the mountain, we see Jesus taking the crossbeam of the cross and carrying it up the mountain toward his own crucifixion. And so they went, both of them together, father and son, in perfect harmony, carrying out this plan of redemption together. That's the sacrifice. It's the loving sacrifice of a father. It's the willing sacrifice of the son. The very thing that offends us that God would even ask Abraham to do is the thing that he willingly and faithfully does for us. That's God's sacrifice. But the meaning of that sacrifice, the function of that sacrifice uh, becomes clear in the next section. Verses 11 to 14 is this crucial piece of the puzzle. And here we see God's substitute. God's substitute. I left you on a cliffhanger because that's how Moses writes this. The, the language slows down. Um, 
we, we use volume or music or zooming in in our movies to kind of heighten the tension. Old Testament um, writings, look for added detail. Look for the story slowing down. And you see Abraham building the off altar, placing the wood, organizing it, taking his hand, reaching out, taking the knife to slaughter his son. And then verse 11 picks up. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Abraham came to that final moment. He had fully decided what to do. He had willed it in his heart and mind. But before the decision of his mind could be translated to the action of his hand, the Lord intervenes. Stop. Abraham, Abraham. When you just imagine the trembling voice response, yes, Lord, here I am. Speak quickly. Verse 13, Abraham looks up to see miraculously a ram caught in the thicket. And it says that Abraham offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. It was Isaac on the altar. He was under the sentence of death. He was as good as dead. But in the end, the ram dies in his place. There's an exchange. There's a, a substitution that takes place. Now, I know it's not neat and tidy. Uh, Old Testament typology doesn't work that way. The metaphor shifts here, right? Isaac is no longer uh, the, the picture of Jesus. Now the ram is the picture of Jesus. And this is the answer to that crucial question has been building throughout the book of Genesis. This is, this is the crux of the whole thing, the, the death sentence that needs to be paid. How could God not kill Adam and Eve? He said he would. How could God show grace to sinful Noah and let him live? How did Noah's sacrifice appease the Lord and his anger against sinful humanity? How could Abraham be counted as righteous when he was not? How can you and I, who have sinned against God, receive anything other than the death and hell that we deserve? It was implied in Noah's sacrifice. It's much clearer here. The answer is that God would accept a substitute. There could be an exchange. The death of one in the place of another. We talk about the death of Christ it is like examining uh, a gemstone, and it has many different facets, and you turn it and look at it from different angles, and it shines with new glory every time. On the cross, we see the love of God on display. 
On the cross, you see Christ as the perfect example of humility and submission and obedience. On the cross, you see the the perfect love for our brothers. On the cross, we marvel at the, the victory of Jesus over Satan and his demons. On the cross, we see the justice of God being satisfied. All of those elements are there, but there's one facet that shines brighter and bigger than all of the others. There's one angle of the atonement that stands above the rest, and it's this idea of the substitute. Call it penal substitutionary atonement for you nerds out there. How can God let the guilty go free? That's the question that's building. That's what needs to be answered. Now Abraham's words to Isaac take on a fuller, richer meaning. God himself will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. And this idea of the substitute uh, is a massive theme that, that runs through Scripture. So many today want to avoid this. We don't want to talk about the wrath of God. We don't want to talk about the judgment of God. So we don't want to talk about the cross in those terms. We just want to talk about the love of God. Look at the love of God displayed. It is the love of God on display. But it's the love of God on display in pouring out his wrath that we deserved on his son. And and the whole Bible builds this. It's interesting as you watch these themes unfold. Again, as as you begin to see the Old Testament through this lens, 1 Chronicles 21 David had sinned against the Lord. He took a census of the people. And we're like, well, who cares? Um, Well, it was an act of pride. He was measuring his human strength, trusting in himself and not trusting in the Lord. And the Lord sent a plague among the people. An angel of death was sent out. God's judgment was coming because of David's sin. And people are dying. David went out and he bought a threshing floor threshing floor would be on the top of a, of a hill where the wind would blow and you'd throw your grain up and all the chaff would blow away. He bought it from a man named Ornan. First Chronicles 21, 26, 27 says this, David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering and the Lord commanded the angel and he put away his sword back in his sheath. So the wrath of God is coming against sin. David offers a sacrifice, a burnt offering, and the anger of the Lord is appeased. The judgment of God stops. Fast forward to 2 Chronicles. David has now died. His son Solomon is king, and Solomon has the privilege of building the temple, this permanent structure that will take the place of the tabernacle. The appointed place where Israel will offer ongoing sacrifices. This, then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father, at the place where David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So the temple is built on the same place where David had offered this sacrifice that that turned away the anger of the Lord. But did you catch the other tidbit in there? He He doesn't even make a big deal of it. The threshing floor of Ornan, the location of the temple, is Mount Moriah. Take your son, your only son. Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. 
Now, it's not specific, but very likely the temple of Solomon is built. uh, And for thousands of years, the sacrifices of Israel are offered on the very place where the ram was killed in the place of Isaac. You think God is saying something? You think he's making a point? And it was never about the sacrificial system. Not itself. That was never the end game. That was never the point. No one was ever forgiven um, because a bull or a lamb died in their place. Hebrews 10 uh, verse 4 makes this clear. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said this, and and then Hebrews actually quotes from Psalm 40 and puts it in the mouth of Jesus because that's how Scripture works. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. God instituted the whole sacrificial system. Not that they would be saved by sacrificing lambs and bulls and goats, but but their sacrifices were a statement of hope. That though they deserved death for their sin, that God would one day provide a substitute. It was all pointing forward to Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice. That's what the cross primarily accomplished. That's why Jesus said that that he came to give his life as a ransom for many, the innocent in the place of the guilty. No ram, no bull can pay that price. In fact, no person could pay that price. Only God himself in flesh could take such a penalty. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. Galatians 3, 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. This theme of the the curse that runs through Scripture. One of the symbols of the curse being the the thorns that would infest the ground. That's the the world of of lack and toil and need. Again, it's not clear, but the ram is caught by his horns in a thicket, a thorn bush perhaps, and then a crown of thorns is placed on Jesus' head. He took the curse of sin on himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For Our sake, he, that's God, made him, that's Jesus. So God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is is the central truth of Christianity. This is the crux of it. This is God's plan from, from the very beginning. It is not about what you must do to earn God's favor. It is not about what kind of life you have to live to get into heaven. It is not a list of rules to obey or examples to follow. It's about what God has done to rescue undeserving sinners. 
that we, just like Noah, just like Abraham, just like David, just like the people of Israel, could be counted righteous, could be made right with God by trusting in his provision of a sacrifice to pay the penalty that we deserve. That's why Abraham calls the place Yahweh Yirah, or you may have heard Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. And, and Moses writes there, even to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Oh guys, we throw that around so cheaply, don't we? Oh, I, I really need a new car. The Lord will provide. Yeah. Yeah, the Lord cares. The Lord provides. But that's what this is about. Jehovah Jireh is about God who provides salvation. God who provides a sacrifice in the place of sinners condemned to death. And it was on that mountain that God unveiled his plan to Abraham, that he would provide a substitute. It would be on that mountain that Israel would continue to offer sacrifices looking forward to that coming substitute. And it would be on that mountain thousands of years later that Jesus, the Son of God, would stand before the elders and the priests and be condemned to death. And just a stone's throw from that mountain where he would carry his own cross, the wood of his sacrifice up the hill to be crucified and killed. And as he hung on that cross, as the perfect, innocent, infinite son of God, he would take on himself the sins of his people. He would die in our place. He would bear the curse. He hung there in the middle of the day, and yet we're told the sun went dark. And for three hours, darkness is over the face of the earth. Darkness is consistently used as a picture of the wrath of God. It's being poured out. Isaiah, if I can find it. Sorry, I'm going off track and I'm getting in over my head. <laughs> There's too much. There's so much here that would connect and, and draw our eyes to Christ. i got to abandon that. I have too many thoughts in my head. I'm sorry. <laughs> but this is it. It's the Son of God dying in the place of sinners. That's the single most important thing. That's the thing you must understand. Christianity is not about living a moral life. It's not about a set of rules and regulations. It's, it's not about earning your place before God. Man, I lived there for years as a teenager. Tried so hard as a sinner to try to impress God. You know what happens? You fail and you get bitter and angry. At least that's what happened to me. Because I can't do it. God, why are you so holy? God, why are you so just? You, you want me to be perfect and I can't do it and, and I'm condemned to death because of it. How dare you? Didn't understand grace. Didn't understand this. When we stand before the Lord on judgment day, I will stand there as a sinner who rightly deserves hell. And my only hope of anything other than hell is to say, he died for my sins. Jesus paid the price. Think of the, the thief on the cross. Stood 
there hanging for his crimes, started off mocking God with the others and then begins to be convicted and he then confronts the other thief and says, hey, we're condemned rightly. This man's done nothing wrong. And he looks at Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Imagine the thief on the cross then standing before God in judgment. He knows so little, so little. God would say, what did you do for me? No. How could he answer that? What, what good had he done? What works had he accomplished? All he has to say is, the, the man on the middle cross said I could come in. That's all he's got. My only hope is that Christ died in my place for my sin. It's pointing to Christ. Nothing else will do. That's the, the sacrifice of God. That's the substitute in our place. Finally, the last section of this text, um, we see God's Savior. Look with me, verses 15 to 19. Let me read it for us. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens, the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived in Beersheba. God had already sworn that he would do these things. Abraham trusted God. His faith was counted as righteousness. Now his faith is, is proved, is, is shown genuine, is completed in his obedience. And God says, I will bless you. And he reaffirms the, the covenants that he had already made, the, the promises he's made to Abraham, and he restates it again. But as he restates it, he fills it out with just a little more detail. He's continuing to, to build it out. Look carefully at verse 17. Surely I will bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and the sand of the seashore. That's, that's combining the, the, the promise from Genesis 15 and Genesis 12. And then he says this, And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. All of a sudden there's a shift. It was multiple offspring, the nation of Israel, the, the future generations of faith. Now it's a singular offspring, his enemies. A singular offspring that will defeat his enemies. And, and through that singular offspring, all the nations will be blessed. The language here is unmistakably echoing Genesis 3.15. He's pointing back. God had said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God had promised there would be an offspring, a male offspring who would destroy the serpent, who would undo the work of the devil to possess the gate of your enemy. That's ultimate victory. Not only is the, the gate of the city the, the obvious entrance, right, through the, the fortified walls and soldiers into the heart of the city, but it's also like the courthouse or the, the government 
building. The, the, the leaders, the elders of the city would stand in the gates. That's where they would deliver it and from where they would lead. When you possess the gate of the city, the city's yours. Your enemy has been completely defeated. The serpent in the garden was Satan, the deceiver, the enemy of God. An angel created by God who had rebelled against him and then who deceived Adam and Eve, leading them into sin. And he continues to deceive the world today. He stands for, he represents the, the, the leader of all those who would oppose and rebel against God. And what we're talking about here is not just the destruction of Satan himself, but the undoing of everything he stands for. It's the reversal of all of his destructive work. It's the restoration of humanity back to the Garden of Eden-like existence. Jesus, the, the sacrifice of God standing as our substitute is our Savior. Savior from the death we deserve. Savior back into eternal life. Life in the, in the peace of God, in the provision of God, in the presence of God. And that victory was accomplished and proven and, and put on glorious display. When just like Isaac got up from the altar out from under the sentence of death, Christ would come up out of the grave, rising to eternal life. One last little theme that, that this passage begins and runs through Scripture. Um, 1 Corinthians 15.4 says that, that Jesus was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You ever wondered why Paul says that? i got to be honest, I hadn't. <laughs> I hadn't stopped to think about it. What Old Testament passage says that Jesus will rise on the third day? Where is it at? It's not there. But check this out. On the third day, Isaac was put on the altar and rescued from death by the sacrificial lamb. On the third day, the people of Israel gather around Mount Sinai and hear the word of the Lord. On the third day, Joshua led the people of Israel across the Jordan River and into the Promised Land. On the third day, Hezekiah, the righteous king of Israel who was sick and near death, prayed to the Lord and was raised up and worshipped in the temple. On the third day, Esther, when her people were under the sentence of death in the land of Persia, entered into the presence of the king and secured their rescue. There's no one scripture that says Jesus is going to rise again on the third day, but throughout the Old Testament, God is building this pattern. He's building this expectation that God does incredible things to the rescue of his people on the third day. And we can go back to each of those stories and say, it's pointing to Christ, it's pointing to Christ, it's pointing to Christ. It should have been no surprise. Again, all, all pointing forward to that great ultimate third day when Jesus would come up out of the grave. He who died in our place rose in complete victory over death. And so we can know for certain. If he died in our place and rose again to eternal life in the presence of the Father, that sacrifice was acceptable to God. That our sin was paid for 
completely. And that those who trust in him, who like Abraham believe God, are counted as righteous, will also be raised with him. Will also share in that victory over sin and death that he has won on our behalf. God is faithful. And he will, as he promised by the work of Christ on the cross, rescue sinners out from under the the curse and the death penalty of sin that we deserve. Back into a life. And life abundant and life eternal. And again, not by anything that we do. Not because I've earned it or done some great thing to impress God. But only by the grace of God because of his sacrifice, because of his substitute, because of his Savior? Do you trust him? Are you resting in confident faith in the promises of this great and faithful God? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. God, it blows me away, the richness of your word. But so much more the richness of your grace. God, we gather this morning as those rightly condemned to death, as those who have sinned against you, and as those who have said, I need a Savior, as those who have seen your grace poured out, that you would send your Son, your only Son whom you love, to die in our place that the perfect, infinite, glorious Son of God would undergo your wrath, that we could be the objects of your mercy and your love and your grace. God, it is absolutely unbelievable, but we believe. We trust you, God. Help us. Lord, if there are any here who do not know you this way, God, if there are those who are laboring under the burden of legalism and always feeling like they need to do better to match up, to earn your favor. God, would you humble them before you? In your grace, help them to see the absolute impossibility of it and that you have done the impossible for us. God, we praise you. We thank you for this glorious salvation that you have wrought. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? Let's close in song together.